Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. There's a lot of toxic masculinity that went into our failure. So we never really hit our stride with the brewery part because people had already biased us on, oh, you're a vegetarian place. I don't want to go there. When Jason and Heather decided to open their brewery in Indiana, they, like most of us, decided to do it their way. They looked at what existed and targeted providing their community with something new. Jason made beer styles he respected in traditional ways. That meant lower ABV beers with flavor and consistency. The couple decided to specialize in their food offerings and target an underserved demographic in their market. That meant building one of the only vegan breweries I've ever heard of. While their niche within a niche might be smaller than the one you set out to fill, in a way, every craft brewery does exactly this. They look at what they perceive as the boring and stale market that currently exists and dream up something new and exciting that will attract customers with their credit cards. So Jason hit all the roadblocks head on and did so very publicly. And after fighting against COVID, toxic masculinity, and a suboptimal location, he and Heather finally lowered the curtain on Escape Velocity Brewing in the summer of 2023. So there's a lot to learn here, so open up and listen in. This is the story of Jason Bahana and Lafayette, Indiana's late Escape Velocity Brewing. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, Jason, I want to welcome you to the show. I want to thank you for coming all the way from it, well, online, all the way from Indiana to talk to us today. So share your story of the the struggles and misses and the the good times, too. We're going to get to all of it. But uh, anyways, thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, no problem. Before we get to your story and all the gory details, we always want to kind of get a little backstory about who you were before you were this beer guy. You weren't always planning on being a brewer, right? No. In fact, I have a kind of a chaotic backstory in terms of never really pinning down exactly what I wanted to do. Graduated high school in 1998, went to Purdue University for electrical, like electronic engineering. Decided that I didn't care for that. Took a year off, uh, worked in a computer shop, started working on a, a NASCAR team, like a local Midwestern NASCAR team. Did that for about five years, went back to college, got a degree in computer programming, Immediately decided I didn't want to do that either. <laughs> and then got, went back to school again and got a degree in computer graphics. Finally graduated, 
with my second degree in 2007, so 1998 to 2007, most people become doctors. I was not a doctor, but it was around 2007. I also got interested in brewing beer. So I got a homebrew kit from my in-laws for Christmas and made two terrible, awful kits and decided to go all grain from there. During the process of homebrewing, I worked customer support for a software company, did a little bit of development for the software, did some of the website stuff, switched to full computer graphics uh, at an insurance company, uh, and then in 2016, moved back to where I went to college and started doing multimedia design for the alumni association there. And at that same time, couple years previous, I had started interning with some breweries in Indianapolis, working on the bottling line, working on like the brewing process, cleaning a lot of kegs, doing my due diligence to get the knowledge from those guys who have been operating for a while, just to see if I actually wanted to be a professional brewer. Because just because you can homebrew doesn't mean you want to be a professional brewer. They're very different things. So were you planning on opening um, your own place at this time, or were you just personally as sort of like nerd knowledge i want to know if i can do this correct it, it was all nerd knowledge so like like uh charlie bamforth he has his series of books that he wrote at, at usc i think but he has those like the book on foam the book on flavor mm-hmm. like i started reading those which are not books that normal homebrewers read because they're you know a little bit more in depth and i just started falling in love with the science. And so about the time we moved back to where we graduated college, it was kind of one of those things. I'm like, I've been in the professional industry. I know I like it. I want to do it. This is my time to find a location and actually open up a brewery. So by default, I have no professional background. Like my, my whole thing has been computers. And then I just drastically switched over to brewing in 2019. I don't know if that's that strange it seems like at least on this show a lot of people i interview either are career brewers that have gone all over and finally did their own thing or people that had absolutely no experience whatsoever and i think the no experience is you know i i'm trying not to draw a lot of conclusions from these interviews until i get at least to like 75 hopefully 100 but i'm seeing that a lot. i think most of them don't have experience including me i know yeah. i know fucking experience i owned a brewery for a decade and did it wrong and uh you could probably look from the first day and be like this guy's not going anywhere so, but um so because of the fact that there are a lot of homebrewers that consider that and that go that direction i always like to ask what were some of the big things that when you started interning and you started reading these books you had been brewing for a while at home that you were like oh fuck no wonder that batch tasted like shit or i can't believe i didn't know this like what, what were some of those like big eye-opening aha moments for you temperature control was kind of my that that was the the change in in making okay beer as a home brewer to making beers that started winning awards uh was just temperature um if you can't control fermentation it doesn't matter how good your recipe is it's going to turn out like shit you don't ferment it correct so that that was like every anytime people ask me for advice like home brewers and stuff like what can i do differently i'm like focus on temperature control because like n- everything else doesn't really matter. You can fine tune that shit later, but if you don't ferment it correctly, you're going to get all the all flavors. You're going to get the shit you don't want in it. You cannot correct later and you're going to dump batches. But that's the other thing too, is just dumping batches. You fuck it up, learn from it, dump the batch, move on. Try, especially with pro brewers. I know a lot of pro brewers that they screw up a batch and they're like, well, we'll turn it into this beer instead and put it on for sale. I would never do that. Like I had too much pride in my beer as a professional. And so if it had any all flavors, I would just dump it and it sucked. 
watching all that beer go down the drain and it sucked watching the money disappear. But like, I, I wasn't in it to make good beer. I was in it to make great beer. And so, yeah, just the eye-opening stuff is just for me, it's just like temperature control changed everything for me as a home brewer. Well, that's definitely something a lot of them can learn. The, the yeast management in general, I think, is uh, the biggest problem yeah. I taste in commercial beer as well, but a lot of that. So you're at that point now where you're deciding you are going to do this. You're going to become a brewer, a professional brewer in your own place. What year was this roughly? When do you think you really made the decision? Uh, it was around 2016 when we moved back here. And that was when I, I got a job with the Alumni Association just as a job to have because mm. we needed money. But that, like, from the second we moved back to where we went to college, I immediately started looking for properties. And so it was a about a three-year process from 2016 to 2019 of looking for properties, writing my business plan, figuring out, like, am I getting a loan? Am I doing it with investors? Like, figuring out all that information was about a three-year process for me. But it was 2016 to 2019 was the whole brain development of the brewery. And did you start looking at locations? And this is becoming one of the more important parts of the brewery the story, I think, at least the industry, it's going to get worse over the next five years, is where you locate how that physical plant costs for you. Um, and one question that I love always asking is, did you even consider contract brewing and not building your own facility? I did not consider that. Indiana laws are a little bit wonky in terms of brewing. We have great self-distribution rights, but contract brewing is kind of weird in this state. But I, I had no intention of doing that because I didn't want to brew on someone else's equipment. If I was going to do it, I was going to do it on my own and not have to worry about timing and stuff like that. Plus, there's, there's at the time that I was starting, there were only two other breweries in my city. Mm-hmm. Now there are six. Since I have now dropped out, there are six total. But at the time that I was planning, there were only two other breweries. One of them is a production brewery. The other one's a brew pub. Neither one of them had capacity for me to contract brew anyway. They were both at capacity so that that wasn't really an option for me obvious answer so i think most people yeah. like us would agree and more i'm digging into the business side i think the contract maybe at least it as a percentage of the business and particularly more so in the beginning when you're first opening uh, just a go- great way to control costs but my main question was how did you decide on the building through that process i mean it took us a full three years to find the space that we were in which the irony is it turned out to be a terrible location. <laughs> um, but we we probably looked at 50 different locations in our tiny city. Uh, we were actually under, on, under contract on one and went through the whole process of getting part of it. It was, it was, so it was a restaurant with a house behind it. It was all one property, but the house was some dilapidated trash house. Uh, and we were looking to buy the property, tear down the house, and extend the restaurant into a brewery space. We went through the entire process of drawing up architecture plans, going to city council meetings, and actually we paid to get it rezoned. Hmm. I mean, this was like a, a five-month process of getting this property basically set to where it would work for us. <laughs> and beware of the bank that you're you're using because this bank went through the entire process uh they tried to tell us how to change our business to make it more how they wanted to and we're like yes we will do that but we weren't actually going to make any of the changes they wanted we just needed their money they don't don't tell me how to run my goddamn brewery yeah um 
but we went through the entire process and we were a week away from closing on this property when the bank forgot that they hadn't done an assessment on the property. And so they sent out their assessors and it basically assessed for about a hundred grand less than what they were going to give us a loan for. So they're like, well, if you can come up with a hundred grand, we'll still give you the loan. And I was like, if you, if I can come up with a hundred grand out of thin air, I don't need your goddamn money. So, <laughs> so that building fell apart. So that was 13 grand worth of time and effort that just disappeared. And we started the process of looking for another space again. One question I have about I that one, because um, I saw the yeah. art, you did an article uh, in the paper about going there and you were planning oh, on yeah. doing all that location. And so there's different arguments here. Some people really like to pre-sell and talk about, hey, we're coming, build up interest and find up a following for lack of a better word. And then when you open, you have like people waiting out the door. Did that starting in that way and having kind of the press and the attention about it, did that actually think you think it helped you as you went along or did it make any difference? It, it absolutely did. No, it absolutely did. When we went to the, the city council meeting to get it rezoned, there was one neighbor who had a big problem. He hates the fact that there's a restaurant next to him, even though it's been there for the last 30 years. So yeah. it's just kind of like, well, at this point, there's nothing you can do about it. Like, you're going to be dead by the time you can do anything about it because you're an old man and you're grumpy. But no, I mean, at, at our city council meeting where we actually got the vote on rezoning it, half the neighborhood was there in support of us. Like, they had just heard about it and they showed up. They saw the zoning notice and they showed up in support because we're right next to, like, the biggest park in the city. It has a water park. It has a baseball stadium. It has a zoo. And they're like, yeah, a brewery would be amazing there so we had we had tons of support because of the social media work we had done and because of all that kind of stuff so okay so then yeah. when you went to go look for other locations were you able to kind of stay in that area sort of and, and what ended up how did that end up happening how'd you pick the building that you picked we picked the building that we picked because it was available okay <laughs> it was in a strip mall with other some other restaurants and some other businesses but it was available and it was within our price. Were you able to purchase that one too, or was it because of Strip Synergy you have to rent it? We rented it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, in turn, I don't know what realty costs in other places, but we had uh, basically 2,800 square feet and we were paying $2,400 a month. So <laughs> it was it was a good deal. I mean, we had to put a lot of work into the building to get it up to code because it was like office space before that. But it like in terms of the monthly price, it was well within our, our monthly operating costs. The unfortunate part is, is that it was adjacent to a major roadway, but there was a restaurant between us and the road. <laughs> and so you couldn't see our building next to them. I mean, it's all a strip mall. So yeah. like, you would see the restaurant as you're driving by, but unless you're specifically looking for us and looking past that restaurant, you, you never saw us. And there were people who would go to that restaurant that never looked slightly left to see that there was a brew pub next to that restaurant. This is not fantastic. We honestly wouldn't have survived as long as we did through the pandemic had we chosen any other location because either the mortgage or the rent would have been so much higher than the place we chose. So there's there's that, but the location just wasn't wasn't fantastic. It was just a little bit too hard to find. One question there is you originally in your business plan had purchasing the equipment as how your business plan was going to work out. When you pivoted to renting and you know, that's, you're not by no means the only person that's had to do that, but curious when you pivoted to renting, did it free up cash flow? Did it allow you to do other things you wouldn't have been able to do if you bought or was there a money issue there anyways or, or something to that effect? So curious. 
No, it it absolutely freed up money. So we we are lucky enough that we didn't have to do any of the SBA loans. We tried to get SBA loans. That was where the the bank forgot to do the assessment, and then that we dropped out of that. That was an SBA uh, back loan, that, and they didn't have the appraisal yeah. done. That's crazy. Yeah. Hope somebody should have gotten fired for that. <laughs> but uh, no, so like we we did our entire brewery with no official loans. We had investors. So we have we have eight investors that have helped us through the process, and then my wife and I fronted uh, you know a good chunk of the money as well. So it's it's all been basically personal money. So we we don't have any actual loans other than the loan I got for the equipment. So I did buy the equipment through a loan, but that is the only actual loan we ever got. Everything else has just been investor money and dumping our retirements and shit like that to okay. you know to cover the cost. But because of that, we learned how to run incredibly lean in terms of equipment, what we're doing, our staff, stuff like that. Like we learned how to run super lean because we knew we didn't have the SBA. And then we honestly just kind of gave up. Like we, ne- we never thought about trying to get any of those kind of loans again. Like if, basically if we couldn't do it the way we were doing it, then we weren't going to continue. I go back and forth in this one because I have the same problem slash solution that my wife and I were actually the only funders in ours. We didn't take on partners or investors. And it's one of the reasons that we're able to hang on as long as we did. But if I had known that I was going to have to close, I almost wish I had walked away and I could have told Wells Fargo, dude, it sucks, man. You're just not going to get your money back. So I don't know. Either way, I don't know which one's the right answer, but I definitely, I did enjoy the nine years of owning a brewery. So I guess in that sense, it was an investment in something that I can live forever with, right? All right. So you you picked a building, you're in a shopping center, uh, it's cut. But just under 3,000 square feet. What what kind of brewing equipment did you pick? What did, what did you go with there? So we went with a, a five-barrel system, which is not, if you're opening a brewery soon, it's kind of not the ideal. You either go with like a one-barrel and then you're open two days a week, or you go with 10 barrels. Anything in between is kind of not really worth it at this point. Like you're either, you're either making enough that you can do production and a tap room, or you're just a tiny tap room. We were a brew pub and we were doing five barrels, and it was honestly slightly too big for our space like a three and a half barrel probably would have been better for our space but regardless uh we we bought a five barrel blickman engineering pro system blickman is like literally like three miles from my house oh really so i know that yeah and i actually i actually used john's trailer when we picked up our equipment my father-in-law brought his truck and we load everything on his trailer and we were driving to the brewery and then we made like four trips and so I didn't have to pay shipping costs because the manufacturer was 30 miles from my house. So we had three fermenters. I had one bright tank that was not connected to my taps. It just did pegs. Uh, but the other four bright tanks were connected directly to my tap lines. And so they acted as serving tanks. And that was that was pretty much our entire setup. And we had a little keg washer and stuff like that. We have a October seamer for making some cans one at a time, but like we, we were all group hub model all the way. So the plan never was distribution really even from the beginning? No, no. Okay. That's a pretty solid setup for a group hub. You can do a lot of volume with that, especially at six, seven, eight dollars a pint. <laughs> well, let's not, let's not bury the, the lead of one of these things, but I, I think it's, I've always tell people like, I'm going to probably stop doing this podcast right about the time that these interviews bore me and I don't learn something new, but I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone that opened a vegan restaurant in their brew pub. And so I think that's a unique angle. And 
I, I think I read somewhere, or maybe I listened to one of your videos where you admitted that that pigeonholed you a little bit and it was a struggle, but I have to think there was a passionate reason why you did it. So I would love to hear during the startup period how those conversations went with you, the seven investors, your wife. Like, yes, vegan's harder, but we really want to do it because came the elevator pitch. Uh, so my wife and I are both vegetarian. She, she's been vegetarian since she was about six years old. I've been vegetarian right. since I was 21. Her, her entire family is vegetarian or vegan, but there's like, there's just, there's no place in our city that we can eat the entire menu. So we decided since we're opening a brew pub anyway, that we would create the restaurant environment. So we, we originally opened as vegetarian. So we, we had dairy cheese. And then at some point, about a year, year and a half in, just I did the math on the costs and how many people were buying only dairy cheese sandwiches and stuff. And it wasn't enough to justify continued buying dairy cheese so we just went to, to all vegan uh which made it easy but my, my wife does business research at the university she works at and in our county there's a greater percentage of vegetarians than the national average and there's no vegetarian restaurant <laughs> in the area and that does not include the student population so that's just permanent residents so when the student population comes in it increases, you know, a lot. That's basically why we went all vegan vegetarian. Like it was, it was just a, we don't want to deal with, with meat. There's a market for it. And the prices are roughly the same in terms of having to deal with the fluctuating costs of meat and stuff like that versus the raw ingredients that we need to make the vegan food that we are making. But I mean, primarily the, the vegan thing was just because we, we wanted a vegan restaurant in our city. And so we made one. <laughs> uh, that's the argument for why most people open the brewery they open too, is that I wanted to make my beer my way. So it isn't yeah. that different, but I would say I'm probably, you'd be better answer to this. I would say I'm probably unique in the sense that I am not, but I, I generally eat healthy, but as long as the food tastes good, I really don't give a shit. It sounds like you ran into some people who gave a shit that there was no meat on the menu, um, which I guess yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. No, I mean that, that we knew that was going to be a challenge and that was the most frustrating part about, our menu is people would come in, sit down, and be, they would order beers. They'd look at the menu and be like, well, if I don't get to eat meat, then I'm not going to eat. And I'm like, <laughs> you eat my chili and you tell me there's not meat in there. That was our, our go-to. Anytime people are like, ah, I'm not going to eat here, we'd give them a little sample of chili. And they're like, that's vegan? We're like, yeah, you should try the rest of our shit because it's fucking amazing. Like, <laughs> we yeah. work really hard Maybe don't be an on making... <laughs> yeah. But we, we had, I mean, I would say probably... At least 40% of our, our regular food customers were people who were not vegetarian or vegan that came back because they loved our food. Yeah, well, it gives you a niche, and it, it definitely scratches a niche in the marketplace that doesn't sound like it was being scratched by somebody else. So, yeah, I, I don't think yeah. it's a bad idea. I just think it's an interesting one that I haven't heard. And so I'm sure we'll get more into that as we go along. But let's, oh, uh, yeah. let's take a quick break because I did promise that I'd let you get up and walk around in between here. And um, when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about kind of the beer selection, if there were any hiccups along the way on the installation of the system. And we'll run with those things and see what happens. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. 
With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You got a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Okay, welcome back. This is, uh, I want to get into this now. I want to hear, everyone always has an issue with ordering equipment. That seems to be one of the hardest, in my opinion, one of the hardest parts about opening a damn brewery is that you just can't have stuff delivered next month. But so you've got a location, you've selected your equipment. How long did it take you to get it? So I, again, I'm in a kind of unique position where engineering is in my backyard. So they didn't have to make uh, it? So I was in, had it for you? They didn't, they didn't have it. They were, they were just getting into the pro equipment at the time. So there were actually, my, my equipment, if you were able to look at my equipment in the line, you could see there were different generations of equipment <laughs> inside of my purchase. <laughs> That's cool. Like when they made changes. So like the, the grab handles up by the, the dry hop port were different sizes on different equipment and like the feet were slightly spaced differently. But no, I had I had the the luck to be able to just go to Flippin Engineering and tour their facility, talk to the people directly. I didn't have to get on the phone, I didn't have to get on email. I could just go there and and talk to them. Um, it took I think it was about four months of leeway from when I ordered to when the equipment actually got there. And in my case, it actually got got there slightly earlier than I needed. <laughs> so luckily, they were able to just store it in their warehouse for about a month until I was able to get my space ready enough to, to pick it up. I don't know how that works with other people. Like, I don't know if when it shows up, you need to take it immediately or not. But they, they have a big warehouse and they were able to store it once it was you know, completed and hold it for me. It was about four months. It wasn't, the equipment was not an issue for me. Yeah, it got better towards that time. But even with that, if you were having to ship it across the country or sometimes from China, that obviously you're still six months in at that point, But which is hard to plan ahead. But so you move in, you've got the equipment. When did you finally get open? <laughs> so that is the fun part about my brewery is the day we opened was also the downfall of our brewery. There, there was a comment when we posted about us closing. Somebody in, in one of the local Facebook brewing groups said they were closed the day they opened. And it's never rung out more clear to me. I'm just like, shit, that is actually kind of true. <laughs> like, fuck you, but you're right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Me, my wife, and our, our general manager, business partner, were sitting at our bar that we had just built. We were sitting there, and we were planning our grand opening. It was going to be for St. Patrick's Day, because my, my specialty beer is a stout. So like we, we were planning a grand opening. We were sitting there with our phones, and we got alerts on our phone that that was the day that the Indiana governor shut down the state for COVID. And so we can no longer have a grand opening. We can no longer have a party. The whole state just shut down while we're trying to plan opening our brewery. And so we had to immediately figure out how to pivot to still be able to be open because at this point we have bills we have to pay. The leniency our landlord gave us for construction, that time period's over. I have to start paying him rent. And if I have no money coming in, mm -hmm. I, I can't do that. So we had to immediately pivot to how the hell are we going to open our doors when nobody's leaving their house? And luckily, the TTB and all that, the ATC, they figured out like 
okay, we're going to be lenient on like growler sales outside of your door, stuff like that. Like being able to carry a growler to a car is no longer illegal in the state of Indiana. Cool. So that's what we did for the first about two or three months is we did just curbside only. Like you pulled in, we had spaces labeled, you pulled in, you called, you're like, hey, I'm here, I have this order. I'm in parking spot number four. And one of us carried it out and put it in your trunk, checked your ID and walked away. And that that was that was it. So like our, our opening was complete and utter chaos in terms of we never had a grand opening. We never got to do the Palm Circus dance. We never got to do any of that. It was just we kind of existed suddenly. And that was about it. Well, and so at that point, where were you getting your customers? Um, I think I know, but I'm curious. So so again, with my, my background with graphic design and social media and stuff like that. We started our social media, all of our accounts, we started them in 2016 before we even started looking for our location. And then we posted as much as we could. So like every good thing that happened, every bad thing that happened, we posted about it to drive traffic, to get people to know that we existed. So we had a, a quite a bit of a following over three years of trying to find a location from social media and we did some crowdfunding and stuff like that. So we had a a pretty good background of that. So when, by the time we actually opened, it was all these people who had been spending the last three years watching our progress were like, shit, now I want to go get their beer. Sucks I can't go sit at their bar, but I can at least get some growlers in my trunk. So that's what I've expected. And so support here, and from what I've heard from most people, the first 60 days was pretty strong. Some people went a little bit longer than that. But then that you know consumer's desire to find beer the hard way just i don't want to say it went away but it definitely the shine was off the turd as a guy I used to work for it would say how would that experience go for you what were your sales like and, and in texas we were open close open close for a while what was yours like yeah when we were doing curbside only the first month or so it was pretty strong and then it started dropping off we started doing i don't fully know how legal it was but we started doing regional runs so we would go to like our major regions from like where my wife and I were from and, you know, to Indianapolis and stuff like that. We would do basically beer runs where they were order online. We would just fill our car with growlers of beer and then drive to those places, sit in a parking lot in like a mall. Really? And then people would just show up and we would give them their beer. And stuff like that is really what kept us going when normal sales dropped off. Um, and then at some point, the COVID restrictions, you know, started lifting off. And we still had not opened our tap room. We didn't have food at this point. Our kitchen wasn't even functional. We were just doing beer. And then when people started being able to go inside again, our curbside sales basically dropped like 75%. Like we basically just lost all of our business as soon as anyone was allowed inside again. And so we reluctantly opened our tap room, having to deal with all the COVID restrictions while being grossly understaffed. Because at the point we were doing curbside, it was just me, my wife, and my business partner. We didn't have any employees. Yeah. So luckily, we didn't have to pay anybody during that time because we hadn't hired anybody. But as soon as tap rooms opened again, restaurants opened again, we suddenly were in a vacuum that we had to hire people and get our tap room up and running and figure out how all that's going to work. And that was in itself was chaos in a bottle basically so as that's happening you finally get to be open but what what beers are you making like did you how did you decide on what your lineup was going to be you were expecting to have a grand opening so i assume you had at least more than one tap on there but uh you mentioned the stout 
I know you won an award for that one. Was that intended to be your flagship? That I mean, the customers determine what your flagship. But yeah, the stout, the dry rider stout was supposed to be the flagship. That was one I won uh, the Indiana State Fair Brewers Cup with. So it was 249 other brewers and 849 other beers eat out all of them. And that was that was also kind of around the time that we decided, oh shit, maybe we could actually open a brewery because turns out I don't suck at what I do. But I, I I'm a kind of a traditional brewer so like i like to brew the style i have never brewed a milkshake anything and for what it's worth it makes money but i have never brewed one. and here we are with me not owning a brewery anymore yeah well i'm not sure um, it makes money long term i would love to go toe-to-toe with spreadsheets and pnls on these uh lactose fuckers and see if they're actually profitable but that's a different podcast for a different day <laughs> yeah uh but no like i i like to i i brew styles that other people brew so like my dry hour stout was kind of my my flagship. I did some German lagers. I did a Kolsch was one of my staples because nobody brews Kolsch. Half the people that drink beer don't even know what the hell a Kolsch is. And I'm like, oh, it's you're going to like it. And you're like the other thing, too, is you see Kolsch on a lot of other breweries' menus, and then you taste it, and you're like, well, that's a Blondale. That's not a Kolsch. There's a lot of that. Kolsch is very distinctive, and you didn't use the correct yeast. So you didn't make a Kolsch. You just made a decent Blondale. So and that's that's another thing too with with my brew pub. I didn't do things traditional brew pub style where you have like a house yeast and a lot of breweries use maybe one or two yeast for everything. Every single one of my beers, with the exception of the single IPA and the double IPA I had, every single one of my beers had their own yeast. It cost me a lot more money, but it made the beer that I wanted to make. Did you um, have to order yeast for every batch, or were you harvesting and repropagating some of these strains? Like that, to be a pain in the ass. If you were the plan was to harvest and reuse them, but because of sales, I didn't go through the beer fast enough, mm. so the yeast wasn't viable by the time I was brewing that batch of beer again. It would be months at some point, and so unfortunately, I was spending like two hundred bucks a pop on a you know three Pitchable liter batch. pitch. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. Well, there's a brewery in town that a friend of mine, and I love those guys, when they first started, they didn't make anything under six, maybe even a half percent. And so they couldn't harvest anything because all the yeast is fucking dead. And so yeah, I remember thinking, like, I don't know what, they were ordering batches batch all the time, and finally they made this beer. It was like a, like a rye blonde, so it had a little bite to it, and it's like four and a half percent. And I, you just made that to propagate your yeast, didn't you? So, fuck yeah, dude. I saved thousands. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the other thing, too, is people would come in and they'd see our beers, and they're like, you have a stout that's, you know, 4.2, you have a Kolsch that's 5.1, like, what? Like, where are your big beers? I'm like, there's an IPA over there. This is what the style is. Like, you can drink, like, six of these stouts because it is, you know, like, 4.2. Yeah. <laughs> that is the style. And people, a lot of homebrewers go into pro-brewing and they brew like they did as homebrewers where they're like, well, this is going to be an Irish stout. It's going to be 7%. I'm like, that's not a goddamn Irish stout, is it? Like, <laughs> That's just something so you can only drink two, have to drink two of them and you can get a little buzz going. Yeah. Well, so during this process, what what kind of were your wins? I mean, this is ultimately your your open, your growth period. Uh, you should be month over month, what twenty twenty five percent growth every month. But anyway, what was it really? I got, what was working for you, and and how did it work out those first year or so? Unfortunately, because of COVID, it was like eighty percent negative all the time. It was just a struggle to exist at any point. But the wins we got were the people who came to our place typically 
loved us and became regulars immediately. In fact, when we opened our tap room, our very first customers that came in were also our very first regulars because they came in the minute we opened and they, again, they were just getting out of their house. They just never left. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, they, they, they came in, they drank beer, they went around to other breweries and then about four hours later, they showed up again. So they technically were our, our first customers and our very first regulars because they came back. Oh, that's funny. But yeah, it's just, it was, uh, the wins for my business are, it never ran really smoothly. And obviously we didn't make enough money to stay open or never made money. I am now more in the hole than I was when I started the brewery because I've dumped almost all my retirement just to keep afloat. But the, the people who fell in love with our brewery there's a good chunk of those people who are now actually lifelong friends. The way we ran our brewery is we were accessible to everyone. So, so you go into some breweries and like you'll never meet the brewery, you'll never meet the owner, you just meet the staff. We were so small that we were one and the same. Like So any given time you came in, you would be able to see me and I would happily come out and talk to you if I wasn't doing something in the kitchen because I also ran the, the kitchen. So accessibility helped a lot because it allowed people to make bonds with us, which made the community better. Um, we did a lot of events, and so that brought in a lot of stuff. And that was like I did Simpsons trivia and some other stuff like that. I did like six rounds of it. And people learned my personality to realize that I'm kind of a jackass, and that's just how I work. And they they got to understand that that was like we didn't run like a normal business in terms of stuff like that we weren't all stiff and stiff like that like if one of my employees had a problem with the customer and was like i don't want to talk to them anymore i'm like cool <laughs> if your if your reason's valid fuck that guy like yeah. like i'm perfectly fine with that and so it, it just like that that was kind of the the wins that came with the business is is we got to run it the way we wanted to run it and the people who loved that absolutely fell in love with it and I mean, to this day, I, I still sometimes post on our social media, but like I, I have a post I'm going to be making here probably in the next week or so that is all the art because we had coloring books and stuff out for kids and adults and supplies and shit like that. All the art that people left behind, I have scanned and I'm going to do a, the art of escape philosophy. <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool. Like, yeah. Should do a yeah, like this is like Yeah. Like this is just the stuff people made while they were here eating and drinking and that for me, that made it all kind of worth it. Yeah, I think one of your videos, you went back in the uh, kitchen and you were showing around. You're like, yeah, we have, apparently have art up here that kids did. So if your kids did drew something they don't want, just give it to us. <laughs> I don't know if you didn't make yeah. it. You're like, eh, no, they don't we, like it. Let's give it. <laughs> no, our, our fridge and freezer in our kitchen looked like a, like parents' house. Like We had art just like scribbles and drawings and shit that kids did when they were in there that just got tacked up on our fridge and freezer in our in our kitchen just like you would at home. Yeah, that's funny. So you obviously had a little bit of a different startup story. I'm curious how the conversations went that year and you know, with different investors, with your wife. It, my wife was a partner, which made it much more challenging when these kinds of things came up. But how many times that first year did you guys talk about throwing the towel in? And curiosity, what reasons did you come up with? Why not to? The first year, there was never really any talk about it. It really? was just... Yeah, it, there there was there was no justification for throwing in the towel in the first year. It was we had some shit we had to deal with. We need to at least give it 
like a proper sample size to figure out if it's a viable business or not. So there was no talk in the first year of it. Year two became a little bit more difficult. Uh, my business partner and general manager was too stressed about not being able to pay the bills and ended up leaving. He was still an investor, but he was no longer a part of the day-to-day operations, which left a void that I then had to fill. So around one and a half years into the three years we were open, I was suddenly general manager, kitchen manager, brewer, taproom manager, social media, and marketing. Graphic designer. Uh, so I, graphic designer. Yeah. yeah, I did all the graphic design for everything. So I was working about 100 hours a week to the point my car, when I got on my car, if my phone would connect to it, it would say, hey, you're you know, five minutes from home when I was driving to work. And when I would leave work, it'd say, <laughs> hey, you're five minutes from work. Because my phone couldn't believe that I spent more time at work than I did at home. And I was like, yeah, no, that's like I'm here 14 hours a day, every single day, seven days a week. That was a big challenge. And at that point, we kind of started being like, how viable is this? How long can we do this before either I break mentally or we just stop being able to find sources of money to keep us afloat? And we managed that. I mean, we managed it for three years of no loans. No, We didn't get any of the government assistance through COVID. We didn't get any of that because they compared your 2019 numbers to your 2020 numbers. And we didn't have 2019 numbers. So they saw 2020 and they're like, you're doing great. I'm like, I have construction bills I have to pay for. I'm not doing great. Also, my sales are about 25% and they should be, you know, 75 to 100%. But I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not making any money. So there, there was a lot of struggle there with trying to figure out like when and when is when is when? Like, yeah. When do we finally call it a day? Yeah. And it 2023 was kind of the, the beginning of the year was kind of like, all right, we either hit our stride here at the beginning of this year or just fucking done so well throughout the time when you look back what are some of the beers you're the most happy about what are you the most proud of beer wise i mean my my stout i'm very happy with because it's a it's again it's a common style but i brewed it in the traditional way which is always kind of surprised people my munich dunkel i had people calling me because it was a seasonal beer i didn't brew it all year round and people would call me like when the hell is the dunkel going to be back on i'm like i gotta empty these tanks first coming in Come in and drink my Pilsner before I can put my Dunkel back on. But yeah, the the Dunkel, the Kolsch, again, it's a style that I was happy to introduce to people. They had no idea what it was. And to see the looks on people's faces, they're like, oh, shit, this is really good. I'm like, well, yeah, it's a, a very distinct beer style that a lot of you people don't know about. Because all you do is come in and find the highest alcohol, like IPA, and that's what you drink. So yeah, Stout, Dunkel. A lot of the like unique styles that people didn't brew, those those are the ones I was most happy with. Well, let's uh, take a quick break, and then I want to come back. I want to talk a little bit about how it turned. Um, you know, you talked about when you made the decision, but there was I listened to some of your videos, and you have been talking about it for a while. So I want to get into how that worked and what the choice was to do that. I think that's also unique. But let me uh, let you run around the block again. We'll come right back. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender post, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation 
all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. Okay, welcome back. We're going to get into some of the kind of like turning points here. Your your business is different than a lot of the ones I've talked to simply because you started off during COVID. So your numbers were down and slowly grew up and you know, that was different. But for most people, they're, they're all over the place. Like you'll have a good July and you pay for it in August or your winter sucks and you barely make it up by the time next October happens. So, you know, some, some up and down, some good and bad. Like you, I always joke, it's like an EKG. But what was yours like? Obviously, you said you struggled, but was it consistent struggle? Did you have big months? What was that like? It was pretty even across the board in terms of every month was not great. I, I would say for the most part, like you, you would have like maybe two or three months a year where you were in the black for the monthly expenses, but the rest of them, they were in the red, which was hard. Ironically, the... And I don't know this, if this has to do with being in a university city or not, but our some of our worst months weren't the winter like a lot of people have. Like December and January, we actually did quite well. February, kind of everyone has issues. But our worst two months over all three years were July. Because with our clientele, like that's when the like the professors are going on vacations with their family, and so much of our clientele were the professors that when they left to go on vacation, we suddenly didn't have any customers, and students were all gone. So July was one of our worst months every single year. Our city also has pretty flourishing downtown program where they have a lot of events during the summer. And so that didn't help us at all because we were about three miles from downtown. So anytime there was a downtown event, it just sucked all the people to downtown and then all the tertiary restaurants and stuff. Mm -hmm. We just, we had nothing. So like there there would be days where like there was an event that we, like we knew there was an event downtown and we would have like our main server on and a mid and the mid, luckily my employees were really Good. They could have clocked in. There was no rule that said if you're not doing anything, you can't be clocked in. But a lot of our employees were aware of our situation. And so they wouldn't clock in and they would just sit at the bar and do their own work and then see if they were needed. And on nights that the city was doing something, they would just be like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to go home because there's going to be like 15 people in here all night. And I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Like, we can handle it because there again, there's no one coming in because there's an event down there. Yeah, which especially they do it in the summer is worse because you're already getting your, your ass kicked from people not coming in. So it makes it double. Yeah. Uh, my brewery was actually in downtown. So when they did those events, those were some of our best days ever. But yeah. it, was it was never our customers and they didn't always come back. So it was, it was good to have a good day. But it wasn't like we built like, lifelong customers based on the wine event that the downtown did either. So. Yeah, and... And there are three breweries in our downtown area, which I'm sure for them, those were great days. Yeah. For all the other breweries, it was shit. <laughs> yeah. So talk a little bit about that. There's two main things I want to ask you about the the business side of what struggled. One is sort of the, the size of the tasting room restaurant and then you know kind of revenue per seat. But then the other piece of that is how the marketplace changed in regards to competition. And that for you is going to be probably both breweries and restaurants and then brewery brewery restaurants as well but you mentioned there were two when you thought about it and seven the day before you closed 
how did that affect what changed? Like, did you see revenue drops based on events at other breweries or were people more fans of one? Um, like how did that affect your sales? So not, not really. The, the irony is when my wife and my business partner and I were conceiving the idea, we went to the second, like second or third oldest brewery in Indiana. We went there to do our meeting to figure out like, Hey, let's, let's flesh out opening a brewery. So we were sitting in that brewery flushing out our brewery and table literally behind us. We were sitting there and at the time we didn't know them at the table behind us. We hear them basically saying the same shit we are. <laughs> we're like, Jesus, like, Jesus Christ, are they, are they also opening a brewery right now? And it turned out to be other people who were opening a brewery. They ended up getting open well before us because they had a lot more experience with that stuff and a lot more money. But yeah, we were sitting next to one of our technically competitors at the exact same time fleshing out our brewery. But we, our city, like the whole industry in, in general, like brewers help brewers. I know there are some people out there who are shitty to other brewers and they don't, they don't do competition well. Our little city, it's the rising waters raises all boats. So like we all helped each other. We we actually are all on a Facebook group and we exchange ideas. We we used to meet I obviously no longer in there, but before COVID and stuff, we would meet once a month, all of us, and talk about what can we do to make our city a beer destination because the more people coming in, the better it is for all of us. Uh, we swap ingredients like at any given time. If I needed something just on a whim, I would just put out a feeler to all of them. Be like, hey, does anybody have a bag of Munich too? And some people be like, I have one. I'm like, cool. I'll be there in 15 minutes. So there, there wasn't really a lot of competition in terms of that. You would see lulls sometimes if one of them had a bigger event, but it was never really anything super noticeable. It was the, the more of us there were, people distributed evenly. And so like the more breweries that opened, we didn't notice any drop in our sales because each one of us kind of have our own niche of the type of beers we make and the type of food we have and stuff like that. And so like there's a brewery here in town that if you want an IPA or you want a kettle sour, that's where you're going. That's the pretty much the only place you're getting those beers. You want old English style beers, you're going to this brewery. You want you know German lagers and stuff like that, you come to my brewery. So like we all had our own little areas of expertise and so it was pretty evenly distributed in terms of customers so we never really had a lot of problem with that well in theory that's how it's supposed to work but uh i think some of what you said is two different conversations in the sense that the camaraderie between the breweries is one thing and the other part that we've seen and your market may be different but when i did the numbers over the last decade of the growth in the number of breweries and the average output per brewery versus the number of the market penetration and so kind of like the percentage of people drinking craft, it basically has gone down a little over half. So whereas you as Brewery X used to have 10 customers, you've now got five because there were just too many breweries. And so the competitive landscape got stretched over it. And so obviously in the national discussion, there are, there's a lot more overlap in styles and types of breweries. And so the fact that you guys have guys that specialize, which, uh, which is a niche within a niche, as I always say, may have actually <laughs> helped that. But yeah, I've definitely seen that comp competition struggle with a lot of other people. So. so then one of the other questions is you mentioned in a couple of times in the videos that you did, and I think one of the ones 
about a year before you announced the kind of like last straw that you did at the end of 2022, that butts and seats was an issue and that you were struggling to find marketing that worked and that you just weren't getting the traffic ultimately. And so couple of questions. One, what marketing did you try that did work? Whether it moved the needle all the way, had to do something. Curious what you found that did work. And then two, was the butts and seats issue a consistent level we never hit? Or was it down from where you wanted to be at one point? It just sounds like it was consistently never got there, but go ahead. No, it, it was consistently never there. Like we, we had some days where, you know, every seat in the building was completely full. But on average, I would say we were about 50% capacity. Any given day we were open. We had (laughs) our very worst day was a day that we made $13. We had one customer. He he came in after work, he drank a couple beers and then he left. And that was the only customer we had the entire day. And it's just kind of like, how how was that even possible? Oh, we've all done. I've had I, mean, a, it's just, I had a Thursday that was a twelve dollar Thursday. We actually used to use it as an anecdote for today. Better not be a twelve dollar. You know, really, whatever. What that was the worst yeah. thing. Our biggest problem is that our customer base was so focused. Like we didn't have the broader like like if you're going to a steakhouse, it doesn't really matter for the most part what steakhouse you're going to. You're going to a steakhouse. You're going to a vegetarian restaurant. You're going there because it's vegetarian. Getting over that hurdle is also proud, part of our problem as well, because people would be like, well, I don't want to go to a vegan brewery. I'm like, the beer is the same. Yeah. I just don't have like lactose or Honey. oyster stouts and shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. But like other than that, like the beer is vegan. Like it, I don't really give a shit which brewery you go to. It's going to be vegan unless they add something that's not. So like that's ignore that part of the brewery portion of it. So we never really hit our stride with the brewery part because people had already biased us on, oh, you're a vegetarian place. I don't want to go there. There's a lot of toxic masculinity that went into our failure because people are like, well, if I can't eat a dead animal, then I'm not going to go to your restaurant. I'm like, holy heck, like, have you ever just eaten French fries at a restaurant? Well, you ate vegetarian food. You did it. Like, <laughs> Congratulations, buddy. Yeah. So like that type of shit did not help us at all. But yeah, like it, we, we, we never really got to a point that we needed more than one server. We had 16 tables and one server. We basically, we ran with one server who was the bartender and the server, and then one person in the kitchen. So on any given shift, our entire group of ran on two people yeah. because we never needed more than that. And when we did, we it was weekends or events, and then we would have like a mid on, but even then it was typically three to four people at max that ran our entire restaurant on our business. So we just, we never really hit our stride because we never, we never got to do a grand opening. We never got to get the word out. We never got to do any of that kind of stuff. We were just in survival mode from day one. Like the dickhead said, you were closed the day you were opened, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of questions I have on that front. I'm trying to think of what, so let, let's think about one obvious answer would be in, in that situation, if you're not able to sell as much on site as you had initially planned, most people would ask, did you then consider distributing outside the brewery? Cause you have to sell the beer somewhere to be able to meet your production numbers. First of all, did you at that point consider distribution in any form outside the brewery? Yeah, we, we had started outside distribution, I think about three quarters of the way through the first year. 
So my my general manager and partner used to work at a, a local like kind of like fine dining restaurant and was obviously knew all the employees and knew the bar manager and everything. And they were always looking for more local options than larger nationwide options. And when they found out we were making stuff like Polsch, for about a year and a half, we supplied them with Polsch as their light beer option for their restaurant. But it was, I mean, we're, we're talking a half barrel every week. Yeah. Is, it's nothing huge. And we were delivering it ourselves. So we would throw a keg into our car with a hand truck and yank it up their little ramp into their restaurant and deliver it. So, so I mean, we were we weren't making a bunch, but it was to thirty a rent. A little bit more. I mean, at the end of the day. Yeah, but like we were making more in exposure at that point than we were on the actual tags. It's just like, oh shit! Like we have our we have special tap handles that we have with like our big red rocket tap handle, and other outside clients didn't get one of those they got one of my little square generic ones but that client because they were regular for a year and a half they got one of my little red rocket ones and so you would belly up to their bar and you would see all these tap handles and then you just see this giant red rocket and people be like what's that so did that distribution piece grow and was it something that was sustainable or were you still meeting you know resistance out in the market and obviously you know a salesperson it's gonna be a challenge yeah no it Again, yeah, we we had no salespeople. I was the salesperson, and I was not actively pursuing <laughs> you forgot sales. To, you forgot to list that in your job responsibilities in the third or second segment. I'm disappointed. No, we actually that restaurant group got a new bar manager, and that bar manager was not pleased with the consistency in terms of my ability because, like, we didn't brew the coals year round. Mm. And so they would they would switch back and forth between the pills and the coals. And the new bar manager was just like, I just want one beer round. And I was like, well, if you can justify me brewing it year round, then I will do it. And they couldn't. Like they couldn't afford to yeah. give me the amount of money I needed to do that. And so they ended up partially dropping us. They would buy a keg from us randomly every once in a while. But they like the new bar manager stopped regular sales of ours. Which was fine because it was a pain in the ass for me to have to load a keg into a car and drive it across the city every time. But no, we we never really expanded outside sales. It was pretty much about three or four restaurants for about a year and a half, and that was about it. I asked you about the marketing piece. You talked about butts and seats weren't coming in enough, and so you were looking at different marketing. You mentioned it two or three yeah. times in different videos you did. What I guess I would say what worked, but I should I'll preface that by saying, did anything work? <laughs> so to get more people? Uh, unfortunately, no, none of it really worked. I, I designed and, and printed out a bunch of, like when you go to like a rest stop or you go to a hotel and you walk in and then they have that rack of all the random shit that you can do in a city. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we printed out rec cards and then I went around and gave them to local hotels to put in their rack cards or to put in their portfolios that you get when you open the you know a portfolio in the the hotel room that you're in of all local shit i'm like hey put one of ours in there and i did that because we had a lot of customers come in telling us that they were just traveling through town and they stopped at a hotel on the side of the highway and then they basically googled brewery or bar closest to them and we were the closest one so we had a lot of customers that were just like yeah you're literally the closest option whatever so come here i'm like yeah yeah and so i'm like all right well i'm gonna spread my word through all the hotels then especially with the the vegetarian you know vegan options because there's not a lot of that in our city and we got 
kind of kind of some response from that, but I've still got about a thousand printouts sitting in a box. Actually, I don't anymore because they went in the recycling bin when we closed the building. But I, I had about half of what I printed out with. Uh, social media, we did a lot of like, Facebook and Instagram ads. Facebook and Instagram ads were probably our biggest success in terms of advertising because once you boosted something, it showed up to a lot of people that it wouldn't normally show up to. We we did a lot of manual labor advertising, so we printed out little free advert or free appetizer certificates. We you know secretly numbered them, but we did them for Halloween. And my wife and I spent two days driving around our city finding people with really good Halloween decorations. And we tied them to little pumpkins that said, hey, you get a free appetizer at Escape Velocity Brewing. And we would just walk up and put it on their doorstep. So when they came out the next day, there was a free appetizer pumpkin. We got about probably about 30% of those back. It's not bad. And so like, yeah, so I mean, we, I mean, that's, that's the kind of advertising we did. But like we couldn't afford any major advertising because we were just underwater the entire time. So one of those... What, you know, catch 22 type situations where, like, if you advertise, you might get a bunch of customers, but if you advertise, then you can't pay employees. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, which which one do you do? I paid my employees. <laughs> At the end of the day, I, I think you'll probably remember that as being the better choice. So, a few questions. A year before you did the video and you made the choice, which a lot of breweries don't which was to be public about your struggles and to admit that you were, you didn't quite say facing closing, but you, I mean, you were pretty honest about the fact that uh, shit was bad. I'm working my butt off and I'm not making any money doing it. I need you guys to tell your friends. Was that a decision that you guys made between you, the seven investors and your wife? And if so, how'd you get everybody on board? And if not, did you just sort of say like, this is the right thing to do? And what was the logic there? Because again, a lot of 99% 99% of breweries would not do this. With the exception of one of my investors who actually reached out to me because they were vegan and wanted us to open. They saw that we were going to open a vegetarian restaurant and they're like, we want to invest. Other than that, everyone else was friends or family in terms of investors. But the way our business was set up is that the investors were essentially silent. So it was understood that they could give me advice in our yearly meetings but I didn't have to follow any of it. They had no real say in how the company ran. So any of the decisions we made, like with the exception of maybe bouncing ideas off people, they didn't really have any input into any of that kind of stuff. So everything we did was essentially either myself or myself or my wife trying to throw whatever we can at the wall and see what sticks. But again, with how accessible my wife and I were as owners to the customers, I mean, People saw me every day. People know my demeanor. They know that I am an open book about pretty much everything out of because I don't really give a shit what people think about me or how I do anything in my life. My life, what I do, you do what you do. And so being honest with stuff like that was never an issue for me. It was kind of I've always understood that I'm going to tell you how good or bad things are. Like when I would dump beers, I would tell people like this shit failed. I have to dump this beer. It sucks. But this is what it is because I don't want you to drink trash beer. <laughs> when it came to the point of telling people like, hey, look, like I need asses and chairs if you want me to exist anymore. The, the hardest part was my, my wife telling me to make sure I dial it back enough that I'm not too aggressive or too offensive on stuff. Not that, you know, I need that. Yeah. Um, 
My wife's never done that either. <laughs> so yeah, no, I get that. That was that was never an issue. I never had any any worries about putting that message out there. Like again, being how long we had social media leading into opening the brewery and showing all of our struggles. People want that interaction. They want to see the good things. They want to see the bad things. They want to see the inner workings of how things work. And like, I'm not a giant brewery that has to have a social media director or stuff like that. Like, no, I'm again, we run on two people per shift. Like we're not a huge organization that it means anything if we're honest. Like, so like honesty has always been something we've always done. And so it was just, it was a no brainer for us when we were struggling to like, look, if you want us to keep existing, you, you have to show up. Otherwise like my mental health is going to be an issue at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and financial, mental, like at some point I can't do this anymore. So it's, it's kind of up to you guys. I'm, I am out of resources. You either show up or we close. I think that is a perfect place to end this segment and then come back. I want to hear about uh, basically how you did it. Like how it ended up coming down. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewerydirect at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, so welcome back. Like I said, this is typically the part of the story that um, I tend to get more excited and giddy about. For whatever reason, I guess I'm twisted and weird, but um, I like hearing these stories. I think that uh, um, for me, it's it's like a there's a transition. And, and at this point, when we talk about closing, it's almost a release for the day after we close. So... Um, let's get into that a little bit. I do want to mention, which I think is interesting. Um, and again, I have not been to your brewery. I don't even think I've been to the part of Indiana that you're in, but from listening to you talk about it, you struggled to get the attention. You struggled to get the butts and seats. You struggled to get what I would consider to be, I guess, popularity. And yet six months before you close, you fucking sweep the local newspapers, people's choice awards. So talk to me about that. How does this happen? I don't know. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's kind of the the weirdness of it all is like, it doesn't matter how good you are at what you do. Sometimes shit just doesn't work. But yeah, so we got best vegetarian restaurant, I think runner up best bar in the entire region, best brewery. And then six months later, like gone. So <laughs> yeah, I don't quite know exactly like there's there's nothing it's 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 all about people knowing already that you exist. So I think it was a little bit a little too late once people finally started coming in because I mean we our sales were increasing the last six months that we were there, but they weren't increasing enough for us to justify continuing. Which is if we had money for another year, I yeah. think we would still be open and I think we'd be thriving. But like the numbers didn't match like we could not survive 
that amount of time for those numbers to get to where they needed. It just wasn't anymore. We were tapped out beyond belief. So it was just like, yeah, we finally hit our hit our stride kind of, but it was just a little too late. Well, so this is a struggle I think that everybody I have talked to has dealt with. And I will tell you, I have told people on the podcast for, there's five times I maybe, I don't, I should have is not the word I want to use, but I could have logically justified on paper and no one would have really necessarily argued with me that I could have closed, that they were a catastrophic event that I was like, ah, this is it. That being said, new owners bought it. They changed the lineup. You know, they're not make, making a million dollars, but they're definitely, they've probably doubled sales from where I was at. So you can make the argument that if I had hung in longer and kept it going, I could have turned it around and, and you could too. And that's the struggle. So you, I think from my understanding, it was like two months before you closed that you sort of, maybe it was a little bit more than that. You sort of said to everybody on a video, look, this is it. You got two months, bring people in or we're out. Yep. Um, yep. How did that go? Like a lot of times with most breweries, those last two months, people just fuck throw money at them. <laughs> did you do well? Uh, we did not do as well as we had expected. We thought that would like put full asses in seats the entire time. And I, w- I would say we maybe saw like a 20% bump, which is not that much. In, in terms of 60, in terms of 49 chairs in a building, a 20% bump is nothing. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> no, like we, we did not get the response that we thought. And the, again, the, the problem is because our clientele was so narrowed because of people not understanding what our, you know, vegetarian brew pub was. They weren't coming for the beer because they were afraid that it was going to be some weird ass vegan beer. And then the food being, you know, what it was, people were like, have you ever considered, you know, serving meat? I'm like, yeah, if I had served meat, I would guarantee you I would probably still be in business. But that's not how I wanted to run my business. For me, it was not a matter of profitability or success. It was a matter of running it the way I wanted to run it. And if it didn't work the way I wanted, then I wasn't going to fucking do it anymore. Well, there's been a, a lot of breweries that I talked to that have sort of said the same thing, uh, that you know we figured out what pivot we would need to make to be either open or profitable, and that's not a place I want to go work. And so yeah. right or wrong, at the end of the day, like, I wouldn't have opened this brewery if I knew I had to do that, and so I'm not going to do that so that I can keep the brewery open. So what does that look like those last few months where you guys, did did it look like you were going to make it at any point? Did you start kind of making plans? And then every brewery has a choice to make of whether they're going to have a closing party and like really get it out there. What choice did you guys make and do you feel it was the right one? So I, I spoke to one of my main investors who's, he's been a friend for, uh, he's been my friend since I met my wife. So tw- 23 years, he's been her friend since high school. But I, I basically just called him. I'm like, hey, this is the scenario with the brewery. Like, I can dump another 20 grand out of my retirement to float us and do advertising and see how it, how it goes. And he was basically like, do you think it will work or do you think it's a waste of money? And at the time, my numbers, my plan that I had put out, I'm like, I honestly think another two months, if I have this money to do advertising, it will work. Hindsight, it didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. so I dumped 20 grand of my retirement to spend on advertising and it didn't, it didn't increase it enough to justify staying open. So that was when, when that 20 grand of advertising ran out, that was when that video came out of, you, you've got, you've got two months. Like I've done everything I can. I'm literally out of money. I have 
my investors are tapped out, I'm tapped out. You either show up or we're gone. That's when that all happened. People ask me, like, what is your main regret for the brewery? And my it's sort of macabre, but like my response is not closing in January. I should have closed in January instead of taking my retirement out instead of going until June. Like I should have just closed. That was what I regret is not closing earlier than I did because like the numbers were all there. Yeah. I was just in denial of the numbers. I just I needed it to work, but like the numbers aren't gonna lie to you. If you if you have an event and you only see a certain amount of increase in, in people in the seats, like it's not gonna get better. Anytime you see a business that suddenly starts having lots of events, you either patronize them or they're gone because the events are what is trying to keep them afloat. That means they're failing. Yeah, so. trying trying to get some sort of like just consistent yeah. people coming in and new customers and yeah. Yeah. So yeah, listeners, any anytime you see people trying to do a whole bunch of events suddenly, they are struggling. Go help them. So what did that look like when you decided to close? Did you guys, and I listened to a bunch of your stuff, but somehow I don't remember this. Did you decide to have a big party? Did you just sort of pick a day and end it? Like, what was the thought? So internally, I had already had, we had planned for two years to go on a trip with my in-laws to Alaska. And so that was planned for May of 2023. And so that like, it was, it was in the works. There was no changing this trip that had been planned for two years. Uh, but at the beginning of May, I basically called all my employees over and I'm like, look, we have to hit these numbers by the end of this month or June 1st, we start the shutdown process. I amazingly only had two employees jump ship. Really? They lasted an entire, they, they stayed for an entire week. They didn't just quit on the spot, which again, I typically only hired people who, in my personal opinion, were really good and really loyal. They, they, they knew what it was, and I had no hard feelings for them. I'm like, no, yeah, you're, you're on a sinking ship. You need to jump out, jump out. But the rest of my employees were like, hey, we're, we're here to the end, whatever the end is. So I made that announcement, and then I hopped on a plane and went to Alaska. And one employee kind of gave me shit about that. He's like, how are you leaving for two weeks in the middle of potential shutdown? And I'm like, I've done everything I can do. Right. At this point, it either works or it doesn't. Me being in Alaska makes no bearing at all to whether we succeed at this point. When were you in Alaska then? May, Mid-May of 2023. Okay. I was there in June, early June, first week in June, 10 days. Right. <laughs> we yeah. almost overlapped. It would be interesting if we were standing yeah. in Denali together. So when I got back from Alaska, like I looked at the numbers and I was like, guys, but, like I, I have put out every single thing I can to beg people to come in and begging clearly doesn't work. I've done events. I've done advertising. Like I've done everything I can think of to get people to come in and it's not working. And like, so I'm coming off this vacation and it's just kind of like in the middle of the vacation. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm coming back to closing down. But in that same mindset, you start accepting things and you're like, if I come back, and suddenly we have a shit ton of customers. Hooray. If I come back, business is the same. All right. Kind of expected that anyway. So early June, I don't remember what day I put out the video, but I just put out the video and just told people like, that's it. We tried. You didn't show up. So now we're, we're shutting our doors. I think it was June. I think it was June 17th. We, we did our, our going away party. And it was like, 
if you want to see us one more time, you have June seven. You have up until June seventeenth. But we got back from Alaska and looked at the numbers, and my wife and I just decided like that, that's it. Like we can't, we cannot do this anymore. I was mentally broken. I, I mean, I we stopped brewery in June. I am still not working. Luckily, we've been living off my wife's salary for the last four years. I have not earned any money at all. I haven't even paid myself for this brewery. But luckily, like I can still take time to recover mentally from yeah. all the stress that I had to deal with. But yeah, when we got back from Alaska, we looked at the numbers and we're like, that's it. And so we did our crying like then and there when we made a decision. And then the next, you know, two and a half weeks when everyone else is doing their crying, we're like, we already did that. Uh, we're kind of in a good mood right now. Yeah, right. We're, we're past the uh, grief into acceptance stage. Yeah. Yeah. And like our, our going away party, we have a ton of, I mean, we had clearly one of our best days ever on our, you know, last day. We had people there, some of our regulars that we've made really good friends with, and they were all like, like crying at the bar and super sad. And we we're like, oh, yeah, no, like I'm, I'm sad too, but when do you guys think you're going to go home? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I've done up. my crying. I just, I just kind of want to go home now. So you didn't have so much like that sense of relief the day after on July 18th or cause you'd kind of already had it when you made the decision. Yeah. Like all, all my relief came the day we decided and announced it. Honestly, it was the day we announced that yeah. we were going to close. That was when all the, the weight kind of lifted off me. Cause then it was no longer, like all, all the future planning, all the what recipes I'm going to do, what food am I going to do, what all that shit disappeared. It was, I have two weeks, I have to manage my inventory for two weeks, and then I'm done. And I immediately started inventorying everything in the building to figure out how to liquidate. And that, that became my new focus of like, this shit will run itself for the next two and a half weeks. I need to focus on post two and a half weeks. I need to focus on valuing everything and how I want to go about selling everything. So yeah. do I want to sell it all as one or do I want to liquidate? There was no option to sell all as one because my area, there was there was nobody who was going to buy a turnkey first. <laughs> it was liquidation for me all the way. And I'm still working on it. In fact, I'm looking at my garage and my three vessel Blickman brew house is sitting in my garage as well as a bunch of the other brewing equipment. I was lucky to sell my cellar and stuff like that, but my brew house is still sitting about 30 feet away from me in my garage. Really? What ended up happening? Cause you still had loans on that stuff too, right? So did you have to pay them off or were you able to do that with some of the funds that what you were recouped on selling it? So I have a, a little bit left on my loans. And once I sell the brew deck, the loans are done. That's nice. We're good there. Unfortunately, I have not had any serious fights on it yet. And the funds that are in my account are running. I pretty much have the next month and a half to sell that equipment before my bank account drains and I can no longer pay my loan. So I'm hoping, hoping it sells here soon. Yeah. Well, do you have it listed somewhere? I have a list of Pro Brewer and uh, Brewery and Planning on Facebook and several other places. All right. If you, uh, I, probably, I probably see it on Brewery and Planning. I just haven't paid attention to, yeah, I see a bunch of them. And if I don't know who it is, I won't necessarily share it. But uh, if you send it to me or somehow mark it, I will make sure to share it on my end too. Cool. Yeah, it's price to sell. So what, uh, uh, yeah, let's ask, what's, what's next? What are you going to do next? Are you going to get back into beer industry? Um, I don't think so because I don't really want to brew for anyone else. I don't want to 
be subject to anyone else's rules. Like brewing, brewing's fun and I enjoy it, but if I'm not in charge, I'll just happily home brew in my garage again. Like I don't, I'm not turned off of the brewing industry. I just don't want to brew for anyone else. My next plan is while I'm still partially unemployed and re- recovering from years of burnout, uh, I might do a uh, cookbook based off of all the food recipes cool, that I, I did. Because I have this weird, I, I'm a terrible baker. I, if you literally give me a packet of brownies that's just prepackaged and you, you're supposed to mix them, I will fail to make those brownies properly. But if you give me a recipe for something meat related and say convert it to vegan, I can do it like that. <laughs> I don't know why I'm good at one thing and terrible at the other. Especially as a brewer, brewers, you know, it's just baking without the, the oven, basically. But I'm a terrible baker. It um, is, but I feel like you... So one of the, my problems with baking, this is off subject, but I don't care what I'm talking about anyways, but I, with baking is you can't taste it along the way. There's no there's no build as you go. You mix all the shit together, you stick it in an oven, and you pray to God that it comes out tasting like it's supposed to taste, and you're pretty much fucked if it doesn't. But like pretty much the rest of cooking, you season along the way, you add and, and remove heat. There's just a lot of ways to kind of like come screeching in and, and sliding into the home plate and still make it taste great, I guess, so... In my opinion, that's what I mean, that that always pissed off my kitchen manager because he was very precise and everything he was prepping and cooking. And I just kind of like I never measured anything. So I was just like garlic powder, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Yeah. And it pissed him off because I didn't measure anything. I didn't taste anything. I had entire meals where I would send them out to customers. And he's like, how does it taste? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't taste it. He's like, what the fuck do you mean? You didn't taste it. I'm like, I just assumed it was correct. I know how to make like, it. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> but like, he, 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 uh, I was making this spicy salsa at one point and I had been doing it for tamales we were making. And I was on like my third batch and he was secretly keeping little bits of previous batches like aside because he knew I didn't measure anything and just kind of made it. And, uh, as I was making this third batch, he pulls out these other two and he's like, we're going to taste everything i'm like cool taste of one taste of the other one and taste of the one i just made and he just squints at me and looks at me he's like fuck you <laughs> like he's like they taste exactly the same i'm like yeah <laughs> i told you they would <laughs> they I don't know why, why you just listen to me that's yeah, funny so I, I think i'm gonna make a like write a cookbook on based off the, the vegan recipes and just kind of give people the the way i cook which is there aren't really any rules to cooking as long as it comes out the way you want it. It's the same with brewing. Everyone has their own technique on how they cook, how they brew, how they do any of that kind of stuff. And as long as it comes out how you want it or in a good way, you did it. You can CIP your own way. As long as the tank is clean, you're good. It's a little different when you're not in the brew pub model and you have like consistency in cans on shelves that like, you know, travel state right. to state internationally. But that's not a model that most people are doing nowadays anyway. So yeah. it doesn't really matter. Well, one question that it seems like I get asked more and more now, and I don't always think there's an answer, but I'm going to ask you just in case. Um, if you had to summarize it, and we spent two hours talking around it, why do you think escape velocity closed? I two main reasons. Primarily, COVID fucked us. Like we again, we didn't get to do any of the grand opening. We didn't didn't get to do any of the the fun stuff. We we were in struggle mode from day one and our location. I know everyone's like location, 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 but in this case, it's actually proven true. We had two entrepreneurial classes at our campus on college. They did entire semester long research projects 
on our brewery. Really? Like I gave them all my, yeah, I gave them like, I, they were so surprised because I just, I literally gave them all the data. They're like, no one gives us their sales data. No one gives us this kind of stuff. They're all secretive and shit. I'm like, no, fix my problem. Right. You, you use this data and fix it for me. It's on you now. Um, and both classes independently came up with the exact same solution to my problem, which was move two miles west towards campus. If you were on campus, they're like, you would be packed all day. But I was just far enough away that my clientele didn't show up. So COVID, location. So if you were to go back and have a conversation with 2019, Jason, would he have listened to that advice, do you think? If 2019, Jason knew the extent of COVID. <laughs> True. Yes. <laughs> hey, bro, the world's going to be Jason, shut down. Sure it is. Yeah. I, I got you. If 2019, Jason was just like, oh, it's going to be just a little flu. I've been like, yeah, fuck it. We'll be fine. But no, if, if I knew the extent of the problem that shit was going to have, then I, that's the other thing too, though. I had just gotten done, like literally just gotten done with construction. I had no choice but to open. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk 2018, Jason. <laughs> yeah at that point before i started all the construction because i also did all the construction myself too so like if i could stop myself from doing a year of construction for not be able to open well to wrap things up i always love asking the question what do you want the legacy of escape velocity to be as it lives on forever in the lexicon of the american brewing history what'd you stand for what it what what was your brewery about that I did things the way I wanted to and that our main business model was essentially, I didn't give a shit about profits. Profit was never in my real vocabulary. I wanted to run a business that people enjoyed coming to and felt inclusive and comfortable coming to. I wanted anyone who walked in the, in the front door to feel at home at my brewery. And I honestly believe I 100% did that. It just, I'm a terrible business person because I didn't make any money. <laughs> well, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I uh, appreciate you spending the time to share the story. I think that we have covered a lot and uh, definitely covered ground I haven't covered before, which, like I said, is my favorite part about doing this. So uh, I can't thank you enough. And I look forward to adding to that story or what you wind up doing in five years because i have a feeling that uh, retirement's not on the horizon so we'll see what happens next with you sounds good all right man thanks a lot thank you Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not 
to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.